You're listening to Red Center, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's Red Center. I'm Mike Seymour, joined in the studio here in uh, sunny Sydney. Hi, Jason Wingrip. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Mike. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. You said we wanted to date the episode, was that right? I uh, wanted a date. You wanted a oh, date? Oh, yeah, we wanted to date the episode, 7th of October, 2010. At about uh, yeah. 1.42 in the afternoon. 1.42 p.m. A.D. A.D. Actually, what do you call it these days? You don't call it A.D. You don't? No, you call it like, oh, some, I don't know, this millennium or something. You take the religious spin out of it. I have no problem with it being A.D. Yep. No, okay. I'm quite happy to stay with that. I like, I like the old-fashioned prayer book. Vows and these, and I uh, like a bit of rock and damnation myself. Fancy uh, those feet in uh, ancient times walking upon England's mountains green. Thank you very much. But that's enough of that. Hey, uh, we've got a lot of news this week and somewhat of a certain amount of controversy, but we've also got a couple of really great interviews coming up later in the show. Um, and Jason, let's start by with your interview that's uh, coming up later in the show because uh, uh, kind of. No, I was going to say knock it out of the ballpark, knock it out of the lower atmospheric uh, orbit. <laughs> knock it out of the yeah, lower Earth orbit. Jay Nemeth from uh, Red Bull Stratos is an amazing um, program that Red Bull are funding to uh, pretty much bre- jump out of uh, a balloon at uh, the upper atmosphere and try and break the sound barrier on the way down, which has uh, pretty much not been done. It's come close, but not been done before. Break the highest altitude um, parachute jump record. And uh, covering it with reds. So, so just explain that to me. They're jumping out of a what? Like a hot air balloon kind of rig. With reds? Not rig, rig, not reds on them, but reds in the machine on the on the balloon um, gondola kind of thing. Oh, so what you're saying is that that they'll have reds up in higher atmosphere, filming him jump off the platform. And exactly. Then, and then cameras on him. Yes. Ah, oh, cool. And how high is that? Uh, I think the record they're attaining, trying to go for, is 120,000 feet. So beyond halfway to what they call the edge of space. Now, or the def- definition of edge of space. Don't planes fly at about 30,000 feet? Yeah. So that would be four times the height yep. that a jumbo would fly four to t- London? Four times the average airline altitude, minus 70 degrees. Yep. That's, that's, that poses a serious number of technical problems. Yeah, it's fantastic. The I guess you don't have a problem with keeping the camera from overheating. Uh, yes, you do. Okay, well, I look forward to that interview <laughs> later in the... <laughs> why you would need to uh, keep a camera from overheating yeah, at that altitude. Good question. Um, is uh, something you'll find out later in this episode. And also have uh, another exclusive interview later in the show with the guys that actually shot the, quote, barn footage that uh, has caused, some, caused so much interest around the net. Um We are going to discuss that shot and then actually just to talk to the people that shot it um, coming up later in this uh, this show. So, Jace, let's start out with the news. And and I think um, uh, D7000s and stuff notwithstanding, most of the news, uh, certainly around the uh, Twitters and everything else, was centred around a bunch of things that happened over on Red User. Yeah. So do you want to paraphrase for us what sort of kicked off what seemed to me to be a a ridiculous, petty um, slapping match uh, of... Is Scarlet being late or the, what started off as an announcement that Scarlet would be late, which really is a non-news news story because I can, you know, we're all pretty much up to, you know, up to speed with the fact that... News slash, I don't have a Scarlet I, yet. News slash, <laughs> I'm not staring okay. at one on my desk. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. God, that's not an iPhone. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think obviously when people um, sort of started to 
uh, I guess when it was announced that uh, yes, Scarlet is obviously going to be officially officially late, um, and the fact that obviously Jim is probably the only the, the most frustrated of everybody over the situation. Uh, basically, I guess it was a bit of an apologetic letter over. Um, the whys and wherefores and the fact that, you know, engineers are optimistic people and, hey, stuff changes and nothing works like it's supposed to. I mean, this is a real-world stuff. Just think about anything that you've done in life, Mike, like trying to move house or buy a car or just well, simple just, stuff. Just move this office, which Yeah, is, just moving your office. I wasn't going to say that, but, June, yeah, just trying to move your office. Now, when was your schedule to move this June. office? Right, okay, and where are we now? So it's October. October, yeah. So just simple stuff like moving an office, which is not... You know, which is something that has actually been done before. None of that stuff in life actually kind of goes to plan. So obviously these guys are doing something, as we'll cross to later when we talk about HDRX, uh, the doing stuff that has not been done before. Uh, pretty obvious that that's not going to go to plan, even if your plans are, you know, changing all the time. Uh, but obviously one of the... Uh, uh, the key sort of issues with it was that um, basically I think obviously there's been um, the inability for them to go into mass production with Scarlet or it's not making sense or it's not making financial sense uh, and we're going to need to build them I guess closer to home build them in the States less numbers not attain the sort of soccer mum kind of numbers we were, we were thinking of uh, and obviously also charge more for it Um wanting to charge an extra $1,000 to put the HDRX uh, daughter boards and extra functions of HDRX onto Scarlet. So I think somebody summed this up really well for me in the discussion that then blew up that followed, that the, that the SLR crowd were acting in exactly the way they used to accuse the red fanboy crowd of uh, behaving, which was just being petty, ridiculous and, uh, and unprofessional. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and some actually acutely worse than others. Um, so I'm going to make a couple of points to this, and I'm sure you won't disagree with me. The first point is uh, this idea of Red being a scam over this. Point to me one way that any member of Red or its board of directors or owners have profited by doing something. I mean, to be a scam, they would have had to have had some way that they made money from stuff. Yeah. If they said that they were planning on doing something and then have decided to make a course correction... Due to, quite frankly, uh, the market changing like and running behind. changing markets and, and uh, GFCs and you name there's it. Not, there's no scam here. There's yeah. a scam. Well, they didn't there's take no, pre-orders. It's not like no. they've got a lot of money from everybody No else. one's it's taken money. It's not no. like... And also, the, the notion that the scam is that they've delayed everybody from going out and buying SLRs, I mean, is as absurd as it is to say it out loud. Yeah. So there is no scam. There's just point blank isn't one. Point two, that this is a deliberate ploy. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. I mean, what... what I mean, that's just sure. idiotic to the point yeah. of stupidity. Why would you go to, you know, NABs with prototypes of the old Scarlet and then go and change it? And, you know, it's just it's obviously, you know, it's just... Extremely elaborate yeah. scam in an in a evil plot to waste a lot of their own money and time. I mean, ridiculous, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's neither deliberate nor is it a scam. It's just business. And the business is they chose a business model that would have their plans more laid out than most companies so that you could look at them. Quite frankly, I would like to know what Canon's plans are with the ES range of cameras and yeah, video and stuff, sure. and they won't tell me. They won't, you know, at all tell me, which is fine. I don't have any problem with that. Apple will not tell me what their plans are with um, iPads. Yeah. And quite frankly, that's also fine. That's what they do. That's also because those two companies won't really even take any feedback from you. Even if you said, oh, this thing you're planning, gee, it'd be great if you had this, this, this. They'd just say, yeah, okay, thanks for that. <clears throat> but Red obviously have, along the way, been, you know, listening to feedback and, you know, evolving to it, which does result in, you know, Stuff like this. So can we just agree that Canon is a really good company 
that wants to make good tools for photographers and video professionals to use. And Red is a company that's really serious about wanting to make tools for video and filmmakers and stills photographers to use. Yeah. I mean, is it not okay just to have at least a couple of companies, if not four or five out there, that actually have no secret agenda, have no underground fortress of, of terror, have no secret submarines parked off the coast with evil plans to upset my, my film shoot, and are just companies that are genuinely trying to do a good job in the areas that they believe that they can bring uh, to, to market. They have pride in the work that they do. Yes, obviously they... Um, trumpet stuff who doesn't you know i mean like uh quite frankly every football team every you know sporting team i know is incredibly yeah. uh loyal to their team and then the people that support that are loyal to their team and the people so are supporting teams that you know there has been a fair amount of backlash for sure i mean part of it has been this adding of a thousand dollars to everything involved okay in well, let's discuss that for a second so okay. the idea is that they were going to no longer go after the soccer mums that they were going to go after pretty much the pro market and, and my point about this is, firstly, when they said they were going after soccer mums at NAB, we all laughed at them anyway. Right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we made snide so. remarks. I mean, we keep bringing it up because it's funny still. Because it was way. funny, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so somebody made this remark about that. Okay, whatever. Second thing is that um, a two-thirds inch camera that performs at 150 frames and has HDRX in it is something that is vastly beyond uh, what we are currently uh, expecting in performance and vastly below, even with the $1,000 price increase, yeah. what we are currently paying. And, and I'm just going to point to one sector, which is ENG news crews, TV stations. If TV stations are going out to do anything from just general kind of news gathering to current affairs programs to even, I'm going to say, uh, a, a lifestyle program, and they were going to grab a camera... They would grab, or could conceivably grab, a two-thirds inch camera. Yeah. They would want that camera to be really, you know, pick it up and run out the door. So it could be quite cool to be fixed lens. Yep. They are Absolutely. not wanting shallow depth of field of one inch. No. They are not going to be doing the stuff that, say, you were doing. You don't That's want to have fine. the president of whatever stepping out of his limo or, the, you know, the prisoner with the thing over his head being driven out of the, you know, the jail at 80 kilometres an hour and then you miss it because of... The yeah. depth of field. This and is you need to get it the first time. There is a ton of people. I mean, and I'm talking tens of thousands of people that bought P2 cameras that were you know a couple of thousand bucks, and there are tens of thousands of people that are buying per month, per week, practically 5D Mark IIs. Like, there's a lot of people that, and 5D Mark II is not a cheap camera. Yeah. Um, and you know, like there is a range here, people between. <laughs> Between things, and, and I got to tell you, I don't think Red ever said we want to be the only camera company left standing and every other camera company to go out of business. Our sole mission in life is to put Nikon and Canon and Sony out of business. I mean, yeah. if they said that, I'd, I didn't hear it. I think the anger has come from people that have held off and held off and have not listened to what we've said, or lots of other people, far, far smarter than us, have said, is to just look, you know, don't, if you keep waiting for the perfect camera, you're just going to grow old with, you know, and, and die with your ideas. You, Get out there and shoot with the camera you can afford and the, the camera that's available now, and don't you know? Don't wait for the, what's coming because, particularly with Red, since their very first, they were just a logo. You know, that the, their very first announced the camera. Their slogan has been you know subject to change. Count on it. Okay, so that's that's all like at one level, right? Then there's this whole concept that somehow um, that they we were expecting Red to democratize filmmaking and that that they've been trumped by Canon and, you know, it's stuff you to stuff them kind of thing. And my argument here is, hello, isn't it more the merrier? I mean, quite, quite seriously, 
I don't want to live in a world where Red is the only camera company. I also do not want to live in a world where Canon is the only camera yeah, company. Absolutely. Uh, or, or Canon and even and, and Nikon. So there's nothing wrong with competition. For the love of Lord only knows there's nothing wrong with it. Your point is so well made, Jason, which is the number one thing somebody should do is get out there and make some darn movies, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hone your skills. Regardless and, uh, of what it is, you know, whatever it is. People that are turning up at the box office to see the social network are quite happy with that film. Yeah. It looks good, and that is made uh, with just an MX Red One, and it's a good camera, and it does a great job. But I can tell you right now, as a percentage of the budget of the film Social Network, the friggin' camera body is, like, immaterial. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just nothing. So, okay, yeah. so anyway, that's, that's enough said about that. I do feel really annoyed at the sort of stupid name-calling and carrying on and stuff. There is no uh, conspiracy. I have not seen, actually, comments like this in a while. For, there are people who are really, literally just saying stuff that do not care that they're going to get banned, do not care. They're basically, most of it's been like, okay, you've, you've done it one too many times, you've jacked up the price, you've delayed it, I'm out. You know, there's you lots know of comments like that, and that's fine. Which I don't, is, I don't which have is, any problem you know, with someone fine. saying, "Which is, hey, yeah. one less person on the on the on the waiting list when I go to get one." Okay, but let me run an, another scenario for you. Yeah? Imagine the scenario. Well, let's run the clock forward six months, even. So we run the clock forward six months, and I'll give you two worlds that we live in. World number one is they release the Epic, and it has the HDRX option in it, and it's been late to come to market, and there's a red Scarlet's just appearing, and they are more expensive than we'd hoped. And they are knocking it out of the ballpark in terms of image quality yep. and, and able to provide you with cinematic opportunities stylistically, creatively, and technically that you cannot achieve. But it's a bit more expensive than we wanted, right? Or scenario number two is we are sitting here and the cameras have been out for six months now and they don't frigging work very well. And they are kind of just, well, exactly what they said they were going to do, but really... Uh, their buggy is all heck and there's some problems and they're not working very well and and I know which of those two worlds I'd prefer to live in. Sure. And I've got to tell you, I've also been through this a number of times. When Maya was about to come out, for, they said that Alias was dead, that Maya was way delayed in being released, that it was, you know, just they should have got it out, that it had just they'd lost all the market momentum, yep. that Power Animator, you know, they said they were going to do Maya, it just took forever to get out. And, of course, a decade after that, or whatever it is, it's the number one piece of 3D software used in the film industry, full stop, and, and has been. It's like the cornerstone of so much stuff that's done in visual effects because, quite frankly, if you provide the audience with some imagery they can't otherwise get some other way, if you provide a director with a way of achieving imagery they can't otherwise get, then I've got to tell you, in my experience, cost isn't the thing that stops them. I also can't see that second scenario actually happening, that it's coming out and it's buggy and it's screwing up and it's ruining shoots. I just can't see... Maybe the HDRX stuff, because that's not going to be there at launch. That's going to come out eventually. That's not going to be, you know, they've always well, said no, it's no, not going to be my there. My point about that scenario that's gonna B be was that Italy. they could rush it to market sure. to make the deadlines. Right. And it would be buggy. Yeah. Or they could gotcha. delay to get it right. Yeah. And then we commiserate about the fact that it took longer and cost a bit more. Yeah. But we are knocking out of the ballpark. They've been down that track before with, with Red and, you know, updates and having to ship cameras backwards and forwards, as you know, and fix stuff up. And so... You know, I can't see them wanting to go down that road again. And so for all of the, yes, I agree, it's kind of annoying that the price has gone up by a 1000 though, as I still point out, it is still cheaper than almost any Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so theoretically, we're going to go, so the two-thirds inch uh, fixed-length Scarlet is now going to be 5750 That So you're talking about something that will then have HDRX, right? We're talking about 18-plus stops, 150 frames a second burst mode. At 3K? Yeah, at 3K. But it's still compressed R3D files that are raw files. Yeah, raw files. Hello. Raw, 18 stops plus. Uh, I mean, 
uh, with 150 frames for 5750, and that's lens, everything ready to go, charger, batteries, the lot, right? Uh, 3750, which is probably about the same price as a 5D Mark II for a, 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 a two thirds inch interchangeable lens. And what I'm still, you know, that's another whole conversation is the Super 35 Scarlet, which will be brain only. That'll be eight grand. So I I'm, I'm can't quite understand why you put HDRX on that body because it's I I'm, becomes a very grey line between that and Epic then now. Well, it, it's not going to handle the higher um, red code values, and so the processing inside it will be less. But for ninety percent of people, what? Yep, yeah, you talk. Mm. That's three K. Yep. Fine. Okay, I'm not saying it's a shit three, camera. Three K is fine. Super thirty five is fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm just. But we've got great frame rates. HDRX. What's going to be the de- what's going to be the defining differences? I, I imagine really that there will that be and... a better upgrade path to new stuff coming in Epic than Scarlet. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like when they people came out with like uh, the iMac versus the towers. It was like, well, isn't this iMac just kill a tower? Sure. It's like, well, no, because the iMac will be reiterated more often. Whereas... But you're going to, be able to put all the same modules on the back of both okay. of these bodies. I don't know. Anyway, it's an interesting marketing step. I would have left HDRX out of the Super 35 Scarlet, so okay. one well, step. But nonetheless, the, as we, what led us into this is that these prices are still sensational for what you're getting. And I think it's really most of the angers come from people who just held on and held on and who probably were sort of, you know, were soccer mum category anyway. Okay, well, well flame me if, if this is not... Like, I mean, I'm all for the independent filmmaker and I happily use SLRs for independent filmmaking. But my point is, you have that already, right? That is out there. Yeah. So flame me for saying this, but I've got to tell you, if I was... I'm, I'm a professional, right? I earn a good living. You earn a good living. We, we are not amateurs at this. We're not students. If we were, we could happily grab an SLR and produce knock-out-of-the-park stuff, but yeah. we want really, really good professional tools. Uh, I'm sorry, an SLR isn't a really, really good hardcore professional tool. No. It has quite a bunch of limitations. I want the other thing that doesn't have the limitations. I want these frigging cameras. Okay, but hang on. If, even if all of this was just us speaking out our ass, <laughs> For a change. The, the, the thing that, to me, should have, and I think to a certain extent did, silence the critics was the release of the barn clip um, yeah. from Red. Now, obviously, we saw the Las Vegas clip the other day, uh, the other app, and I just thought, yeah, okay, that looks interesting. But this this shot, if you haven't seen it, and it's also a video clip, which uh, Mike uh, pointed out to me, there's later on down the thread, there is um, uh, an M4V of this, uh, which is you outstanding. Look, you should look the video, yeah. Uh, and I think this is probably the most significant clip or development in not just Red, but in you know filmmaking in general. I use the word film. Um, Honestly, this clip that gray. we're looking at with the barn door and the girls yep. drinking the milk bottles. Yep. Like if you had to yep. write the Wikipedia entry in yep. 10 years' time for Red, yep. you'd have Red one with that milk bottle shot and you'd have Epic with this shot. So those that haven't, haven't seen this and don't have access to it immediately, this is a bright, hot midday, and obviously we'll, we'll touch on this with our interview coming up, uh, out full-on uh, bright uh, overhead sun outdoors and the camera's inside in a barn uh, with no exterior lights, nothing being bounced inside. And I'm, I, I'm looking at this clip and I can angle the laptop, my laptop screen, and I can see detail in every part of this frame. The hot, like this is like light sand hit with overhead sun, midday sun, 
and with no NDs, no sort of no protection to the for exposure whatsoever. But using uh, only not the full setting of HDRX mode, just you know, we haven't taken it all the way up to eleven here with this clip. Only using a bit of it. But I cannot see. I can see detail in every single part of this this frame. And I've I've said it, and I'm going to say it again. I you cannot. I swear you cannot achieve this shot with film. I think this image here is where digital cinematography has now lapped film, film's ability. I don't care. Okay, again, flame me, email me, ping me, whatever. I'm looking at this clip with the best stock and the best balancing of this shot, you know, choosing just the right middle exposure and the best transfer and telecine and and, 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 um, excellent colour timing. I just can't see how you're going to get this range out of the best negative in the world. Okay, now what we're looking at here, obviously, because we're like you, is what we got off the net, which was to say what was posted in the forums. It's a high-quality still, but it's not an R3D. It's a high-quality movie, but it's not even a, um, an uncompressed or a, yes. you know, ProRes or full-quality uh, in any way, shape, or form video. Plus, of course, we weren't there to film this. So rather than just sit around and uh, debate this, and as you know, I think that I said this last week, I think this is uh, an enormous, just enormous feat of uh, engineering because it looks so good and looks so normal. But the thing is, what did this look like in real life and what did this look like when they were filming it? And so rather than just sit around and debate this, Jason and I thought we'd just go straight to the source. So we basically contacted uh, Michael Plumbridge, who was Michael and Peter, a team in uh, Las Vegas. They are... Uh, actually, ex-Australian um, worked uh, you in... You may detect a slight accent. accent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they are, as you'll hear in the interview, um, based much of the time in America. Uh, they are friends with Jim, who uh, runs Red. The three of them, so just the three guys, Peter, Michael and Jim, went out for four hours to film this. We spoke to Michael about what it was like to do this. Now, I should point out Michael's background, Jason, is he himself is a cameraman, though today he tends to act more as a yeah, kind of creative director yeah, for creative Peter. Director. Peter's, I can't discuss the details of this, but Peter's just signed on with a major US network to produce a very large number of um, shows in, and, and run a whole team thing. And so consequently, uh, he's really, really busy. Um, but it was just the three of them. So when you look at this footage, you have to remember that that is the entire crew. And the entire amount of equipment is an epic. Not even an epic with ND filters. Yeah, just an epic. Yeah, an epic and the lens. So let's hear from the horse's mouth what it was like to shoot this and also just literally what it was like to stand beside the camera, as it were, as I tried to explain this in the interview, just with the human eye looking at the scene, what did it look like? Because, you know, we can try and read things into blowing up stills, but there's nothing like just talking to the guys that shot it. And we have Michael on the line from Las Vegas. Thanks for joining us, Michael. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. So um, I wanted to talk to you about this uh, barn shot uh, that has been published uh, by Red on the uh, Red User website. Um, and uh, yep. t- tell me how you got involved with this shot. Um, well, we're good friends with uh, Jim Gennard and Jared Land, and uh, we've been testing the camera um, probably for quite a while. We've known Jim for about three years since he did his first um, big uh, trade show at the NAB in Las Vegas, and we've become good mates. And... Uh, you know, we're always bouncing ideas backwards and forwards off each other and he invited us to come out and um, do a shoot a few weeks ago, which we did. Uh, we went into Las Vegas, the old downtown, to try this new HDRX. And, um, now, when you say we, you mean, you mean yourself and Peter, right? Myself, Peter Lick, 
and uh, and Jim himself. Right. So uh, he doesn't just give us the camera and let us go go for it. He likes to be there and and uh, yeah, we go out as mates and just have a bit of fun and shoot some uh, some experimental stuff because he's always trying to uh, break new boundaries and and uh, doing a lot of it. Now we're not so going to be able we to, to we're not going to be able to hide from people that are listening to this the Australian accent. So, are you based in oh, America? Do you want me to slow down? No, no. I'm just saying that, like, for people that are listening, you, you know, you're you're based oh. in America, are you? What's where are you guys coming from? I'm actually I'm actually, uh, I'm actually Peter Lick's creative director and best best friend of uh, 35 years. We both started photography at the same time around about 1979. So that sort of gives away our age. Um, but I work for Peter about six months of the year. I'm based on the Gold Coast in right. Australia. And uh, I come over here for like three months, three months back in Oz, and three months back. So generally, that's six months a year. Right. And so, so you you gone out in the desert with this camera, and and I understand it's just the three of you. So if we're talking about this barn shot, for example, there is yep. no gaffer truck, there is no ton of other gear off camera. We just pulled the pulled the camera out of the the trunk, as they call it over here, and uh, put on a tripod, and and uh, we actually didn't have any NDs, and it was blistering hot outside. It was full midday sun. We got there about lunchtime. Full midday sun and we walked into this barn which is very dark. We're shooting at 500 ISO. So um, at a guess, I'd say you'd be at about 5, 6, maybe F8 uh, normally. But the uh, outside was about, probably more like about F32, F45. <laughs> it was When you look through the, the screen, the LCD screen on top of the camera, the doorway of the background was completely blown out. It was just white. You couldn't see a thing. Yeah, it's really it interesting to get. Yeah. I was really interested to get your first-hand opinion of what it was like standing beside the camera, looking at the scene. Because, of course, the scene I think is remarkable because the yeah. the finished shot looks so natural. And so, yeah. the only way to get a reading on this is to ask you what it was like standing beside the camera and how much you. You've said it was midday sun, and I, I've been in Nevada. That midday sun is really yeah. harsh, isn't it? It's brutal. Yeah. So it's brutal. Um, well, we were all shooting it. We're all hands on, so we weren't just standing beside. We're actually operating well, it. And, but you know what I mean, like the for, from a yeah. from a human perception point of view, standing beside what the camera was recording, that really felt. Sure. The the most difficult part was to believe what you could see on screen and and uh, trust Jim that actually when we uh, looked at it later on that that background was actually going to be there because it wasn't there on the screen. It was just a, a dark barn, and we exposed for inside the barn, which is probably a four or five stops uh, darker than what it was outside in the background. And it wasn't until we got back to Jim's and we went through it and he put it in HDRX uh, mode and it's all there. It's like, like magic. So well, it was incredible. And actually Peter walked out, out of the barn to go and do something and he walked back in. I said, just do that again and we'll roll, we'll record this because when he walked outside, as soon as he walked outside, he just had a, a tank top or a singlet on. His skin just went white. He just completely... Was burnt out, so uh, I thought that might be a good test to get him for walking outside in the sun, because that's that's quite a tricky, tricky situation to uh, for anybody to get get right. And he walked through from sunlight into darkness, and um, he was exposed perfectly the whole way, which was just phenomenal. I, I used to be a cameraman at Channel Ten in uh, Melbourne for quite a few years, and so I've got a background in that, and I've been a photographer for thirty years, so I've had to shoot almost every scenario that is possible. And that was that was incredible to be able to do that. So yeah. I think they're going to have you know their life's going to become a lot easier with this camera. 
Yes, can I ask you about that? Because with all your experience and having actually shot with it, do you have any opinion yet about how it may change someone's approach to cinematography in terms of lighting? Uh, As far as having doing interiors, where you have to shoot the outdoors uh, from the inside, normally you have to bring up the the lighting inside to try and balance outside or MD the the windows, the glass, or whatever it is. So I think uh, that's going to help big time. With you know just the speed, not not having to jell those windows. Um, if you're doing interior shots, and you know she used to shoot a lot of drama, that was always a problem. So I think uh, in those situations, it'd be phenomenal. I mean, it seems to me that this barn presents the classic lighting problem of filming someone inside totally. a car with with outside the car with the the uh, yep. surrounding, and the director normally wants to see where they are and where they're driving, but it's almost impossible exactly. normally to balance the interior of the car with the exterior unless you green screen and composite it later or, or go to enormous lengths all, to light the interior. All of that. Yeah, but uh, we, there was actually old cars out there. This was an, an old ghost town and uh, there were old cars out there and we actually did that exact scenario. Not We didn't have anybody sitting in it, but it was midday sun coming through the windscreen of an old truck and uh, in, in the interior it was just black you know, in shade and uh, to try and get the detail in the interior of the truck and hold the sky was just, we, we looked at it on the screen and again we said, are you sure about this? Like it just didn't look, you know, the sky was completely white, it was burnt out. But again, we, when we got got back and had a look at it, it was all there, the sky was blue, there were white clouds and and the interior of the truck was, there was more detail and you could know what to do with And what I like is, from the sound of things, this was all a fairly effortless problem. It wasn't as if this was like a huge amount of dicking around to actually get this to work. No, we we sort of allowed about four hours to go out there and shoot, and we were were done probably within an hour and a half max. So it was all very quick, and yeah, we did probably about ten different setups. We were looking for the shiniest stuff possible. We shot an old truck and uh, actually put the sun in the the hot sun in the reflection of the windscreen, uh, shooting from the outside, and it. You couldn't even, with the naked eye, you couldn't even, all you could see was a hot ball and it just completely blew the windscreen out and, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. So it actually sees as much as your eye, if not more. It's, it's quite bizarre. So, yeah. Uh, we, we use whole uh, different settings. It's, I think it goes up to 6, HDRX uh, plus 6. So it, um, although that's probably a bit overkill. You, you, you didn't even max out the settings. Like you were only at, I think, plus 4, if I remember reading correctly. Yeah, well, plus 4. Plus four in the barn. I think we did plus three in the old truck. Um, yeah, plus three is probably the sweet spot we worked out. So, you know, because obviously anything, if you push it too hard, it's going to uh, work it a little bit beyond its. But it will, it will do it. It will certainly do it. I mean, we had shiny chrome bumper bars and fenders and all that sort of thing, and it held every bit of detail. Now, and of course, the other week when we when we went down to uh, um, the old downtown uh, Las Vegas with all the street lights, I mean, there's probably a hundred different types of lights there from fluoros to neons to, you know, um, tungsten to just flashing lights everywhere. It's just an assault of lighting situations. Uh, fire engines are driving through the shot with sirens going and everything. And it just held every single every single light in the, in the shot. It was, it was amazing. Now, you'd obviously know very well from your photographic experience that uh, in a stills world, obviously people have been doing higher dynamic range imagery by bracketing shots mm-hmm. and combining them in post. The thing that I find <laughs> remarkable about this, and I'd, I'd welcome your opinion, is it seems to me that 
and I think I mentioned this earlier, its biggest benefit is that this shot uh, of Peter walking into the barn just looks normal, whereas a lot of that HDR photography, yep. the tone mapping actually makes things look ghastly. Um, crap, we don't, use, we don't use tone mapping at all. We, we do it, we shoot, uh, you know, we bracket our exposures to shoot HDR-like, but we never use the, uh, the Photoshop stuff. We actually do it, do it by hand manually in Photoshop and paint brush in areas that we need to... Uh, Exposed properly because the, the the tone mapping stuff just looks ghastly and looks so artificial. Some things like the odd, maybe an old barn or an old shack in the middle somewhere can look okay, but most of the time HDR looks so artificial. And I think what that is is the lack of black in the shots because it seems to open up the shadows so mm. much that the blacks become grey, and that's where it looks artificial. So it actually it is actually good to have still have a bit of black in there. Detail, yes, but not not. Grey, black, and also you tend to get those regional, soft-edged kind of combining of uh, different highlight areas, which gives you this kind of yep. ghosting, kind of yep. ghastly thing. But I think my point is that this footage, which you have not done that to, you obviously have not gone through and produced mats and and produced manually. That's the thing. Yeah, that, that's straight off the card, and that's looking really, really natural. I mean, uh, yeah. you must be really pleased. Well, Especially around, around the edge of a door, because you know if you normally shoot, I've shot a mm-hmm. lot of hotels and resorts and. They want, you know, they want the beach in the, through the window sort of shot. And yep. Trying not to get those burnt-out window frames. With, like you said, you get the ghosting and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's clean. It's, it's just, I don't know how he's done it, but he's done it. <laughs> and it was effortless. We didn't have to do anything other than set the camera on HDRX so, and whatever setting we wanted, which was plus four in it. And the other thing that's interesting is on the left of shot, at the beginning of the shot, there's a window yes. with, with a fine uh, kind of uh, wooden interior frame separating out six or eight panes of glass. And what yes, would normally yes. happen in, in stuff that's overexposed is that the light wrap would just uh, basically destroy those edges because it would kind of... It does. Yeah, they look blurry and uh, ghostly-like. Yeah. But in fact, that hasn't yes, happened nothing. here. It's um, Nothing. It's happened... like it's all like cut and paste. It's just so perfect. It's a clean edge. Well, so, I, pretty amazing. I really appreciate getting a first-hand uh, opinion of what it's like to shoot with it, and uh, yeah, and I, I think... love it. We just we love it. Any opportunity we get, we we, we go out there and we're always around at these places, uh, just talking camera stuff. It's great. We're glad to be part of it. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Thanks very much. So what was what was fantastic that you touched on there, Mike, is that this is not just all about us wanting to do amazingly freaky kind of tone mapped kind of video. This is about exactly what he was talking about the time the time saving factor of not having to gel windows, not having to bounce hot lights, not having to you know spend that time and light and horsepower and kilowatts to counteract you know the lack of dynamic range that we've had to, so far. So this is a you know it is. Okay, I'm going to say game changer, okay? Just because oh, I, it I is. I have no doubt. I think you know, this literally will change how cinematography is practiced at a at a at like at a at a mundane level, if you like, not in terms of the creative process of telling the story, but just in terms of the practical nature of the cinematographer in what lights he has to pull out, how he approaches a shot. I don't even think we can yet appreciate how much this will change the craft of cinematography. And this is literally first, second generation of this technology, right? And what we touched on is this is like set at HDRX, you know, plus four, whatever that means. Yet there is still some 
some range to the the Ace Direct control. You go up to plus six or something mm-hmm. like that. Plus six, I yeah. I think yeah. what's interesting is a couple of people on the net took this image, the still, and then tried grading outside the window. They said I was a bit blown out outside. Yeah. And I was like mortified for two reasons. Firstly, because hello, you're grading off a JPEG. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like that eight bit compression here. Yeah. But secondly, it's no accident that it looks like that because there is detail outside of the highlights. But quite frankly, you know, you would want it to look not the same because the thing that Michael made the point about, that we made the point about, I think, and even last week, we we're talking about the normality of uh, the results of this stuff. Yeah, this is looks filmish. It, yeah, you want it to look like it's yeah. brighter outside. You're not yeah. trying to produce an artificially stupid yeah. looking image. This should, as I think I posted on Twitter, this should either look A, ridiculously fake, like it's done with green screen because you can't normally get that in real life, or B, just look ghastly because it looks like a tone-mapped kind of horrible, ghastly thing that we yeah. hate. Basically, this is just letting you get every piece of detail in, in the shot and let you have that control later to make it look ghastly or perfect. And, and, and you know, I'm just, I'm just blown away. <laughs> Tom Gleeson, who uh, is uh, an old DOP that you used and, yeah. uh, and certainly we know, um, he's actually writing a story which we hope to be publishing in FX Guide, uh, as he tries to ponder some of the implications of how you may about go about shooting on a job like uh, that would come up, say, and you would got this as as an option, mm. because a lot of the things that we kind of use as our basic rule of thumbs uh, are going to change, and you know how we approach the shot. But I thought, uh, as I heard Michael talking, and you know he was explaining, okay, well even the the, um, and I should point out, of course, this, Michael is using prototype camera this is not released this is not michael speaking on behalf of red in fact one of the very reasons we wanted to talk to michael was we wanted to get someone you know quite honestly was a working professional who wasn't a red employee got nothing against Mm. red great people but nothing beats having someone um uh just independent talking about it and but yet of course you know it's straight out of the camera so this is not processed uh with its um second option of post-production process this is straight out of the camera and it's a prototype camera that being said so this is so this is seriously how it would pop up in red cine x or whatever the hdrx version yeah, of red this cine was X this was literally be. they went back to jim's place this is what came out of the camera without doing a post-process right. path on it because as far as i understand i'm really just you know it's a little bit gray to me that you kind of the hdrx files are kind of like tracks that you have yes there's layers yeah, so it's, basically you've got a base and then you've got an additional track effectively which provides the extra dynamic range. Yeah. If you choose to not look at the additional track in any way, shape or form, you just get a pretty much normal looking picture. Right. But but most people will probably end up shooting HDRX full stop, end of story, that's all I'm shooting. Yeah. Um, in much the same way that I tended to shoot higher than RC28, even though RC28 would look quite good on the original Red 1, I just tended to shoot a higher because it just gave me a bit more flexibility. I don't even know if I want it yet. They shot this um, HDRX plus four. Now, I should point out that, and you probably have seen this in the forums if you've been on Red User, uh, this is all red with Graham um, principally leading the charge from their technical team. There's also been talk of them working with the Foundry, and Simon's name has come up out the Foundry uh, on this. And I, I know Simon, he's a good friend, and we've worked obviously very closely with the Foundry for many years. Simon's comment, which was made publicly, was he was kind of stunned that they're getting such good results out of just what they're getting out of the camera that he, I think he said, and I think half seriously, 
I'm kind of surprised they even want us to look at it because it already looks so good just looking yeah. at the camera that I don't expect, I don't really expect to be able to, you know, he didn't say this, I think, but he was almost like, I'm not sure why you'd actually want to go much further than this because this already looks so good is the gist of what he's saying. Yeah, paraphrase. that's right. Well, I guess beyond this, it does start to probably edge into kind of crazy land and tone map and well, I think probably just a little other world. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that that's not the case because Simon's team at the foundry uh, is exceptionally good. I think it's more likely that there'll be other opportunities of things that you can do. So it won't so much be that it looks more tone mappy with the Foundry solution. I think it just might be that you might use the Foundry solution if you wanted in this particular case. I'm just going to use an, an example, not based in fact. I wanted the outside to look normal and the inside to look a lot more crushed than this. Then maybe yeah. you know, you'd use the Foundry tools because that's pushing it harder than you can push it out of the camera. Um, this is uh, Maybe also, if you want to do an animated dynamic between the outside and the inside. This is massive that. for visual effects too, isn't it? I mean, oh, you've got to spend dollar. a lot of time trying to capture uh, HDRs in camera with multiple exposures. And if you can get close to that, I mean, you guys can capture a whole bunch more st- stops than that by doing, you know, stills, HDR kind of recce. But uh, to, you know, in real time capture, you know, 18 plus stops is just going to be massive for visual effects, surely. Absolutely. And I guess you guys remember that we did uh, something um, a while ago on Red Saturday where we were looking at some HDR work that was done by uh, basically having two reds, not even MX reds, just normal reds. And uh, this was the uh, E3D guys did um, uh, a stereo rig, but the stereo rig was 100% in alignment. So there was no interocular uh, separation. It literally was camera one. Was it one exposure? Camera two was a different exposure, and then they just combined them. Mm. And I remember saying at the time that this was a window into what we would hope to see. Um, and, in fact, one of the guys that did that was here in the office yesterday. We were doing some stuff with him at FX PhD. And, um, and he was saying this is great as far as he's concerned because they can get back to worrying about 3D. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it's absolutely the case that the holy grail would be to able to catch a high dynamic range stuff in, in a moving form. And we just haven't been able to do that. And I've got to say, on set, it's actually a bit of a an imposition sometimes to get in there and get the HDR. And, look, I was talking once to the guys at, uh, at ILM on um, – pirates and i said oh, what was the advantage of doing your 3d tracking from just one camera and they said which you know it's obvious when you when you hear it out loud they said well you know what we always know we have at least one camera <laughs> otherwise there's no shot yeah. so if we can use that one camera to get the information we need yeah. then we we guaranteed it's the right camera it's the right take it's the right lineup it's the right look it's the you know it's the one we can guarantee to have is the one that actually made the shot on so yeah we would we would adore in visual effects to get this sucker in, and I can't wait to get it to test um, for green screen and other things because, you know, God, love us. This is just unbelievable. Yeah. Well, obviously, for Epic and stuff, this is well within the limits of the ASIC and what the processor and everything can do. Part of the issue with the extra cost, and people have said, oh, well, you know, the extra $1,000 is, you know, to cover the fact that they now have to make them at home and, you know, they can't sort of mass produce them so much and the extra well, that's thousand. That's pure speculation. Yeah. Though. Well, um, the, the under, my understanding is that the, um, uh, the, the Scarlet board and the ASIC has limitations yeah. that the Epic can handle. Um, that the Scarlet needs like extra daughter boards and an extra sort of um, circuitry to to do this in real time uh, that the Epic can handle natively. So, you know, hence they've obviously thought, well, let's include this in the camera and there's going to be a a, uh, price hit for that rather than just we're going to make the same camera but charge you for the fact that we can't now make it mass-produced. 
And also, here's the other thing. If you were to release this camera and run the clock forward a year from now and you had the Scarlet's unable to do the HDR stuff, wouldn't you be more ticked if you'd invested in a Scarlet only to discover that it was sort of end-of-life technology in terms of only mm. having limited dynamic range and you had to be at the Epic for the higher dynamic range? Because you know that now that Red has shown this stuff, that a bunch of other camera manufacturers are going to be charging down this. And in fact, we have an interview coming up hopefully next week with a team shooting with the Spheron HDR camera in the UK. Right. Because uh, the Spheron um, was actually announced pre-Epic uh, <coughs> HDR mode, I think, um, two and, and a half years ago. Yeah. Two and a half years ago at SIDGRAPH, though mm, we right. only saw it running this year at SIDGRAPH. And they're now shooting with it in London. And so we've got hold of the team in London. What's and we the dynamic make- range of that one again? 20 f-stops. Right, okay. We're and, getting close. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, uh, you know, the more the merrier. I mean, I'm, as I said, sure. I think the Spheron guys are awesome. I think they're, you know, I don't want... Red doesn't need to kill Spheron. I mean, I think that it's great that they're both doing it. But I just think it's great from my point of view. Here at Red Centre, we like to talk to the filmmakers that are using the cameras, not just the equipment manufacturers. And so, again, with the Spheron camera, we're going to be talking to some people that have just finished filming with it. Uh, in London and get and get their take on it and how they approach it from a DOP's point of view. So the, I don't know what the hell I was saying into this, but <laughs> no, I was I was going to just say going back a little moment to the whole um, sort of shoot with the cameras that we've got now and just you know love what you've got at the moment. Is it literally this? I mean, because you know I've been sort of up on red, down on red, you know, up on DSLRs, down not down on DSLRs, but I've been you know favorite camera du jour. But this this week, just this last week, done I did like whatever, seven commercials across three different DOPs, four different cameras, all MX, uh, shot an entire red week. Just And we had not one hold-up, failure, glitch, dropped frame, nothing. And every single image has been fantastic. Clients are absolutely loving it. I'm really, really happy with it. And I'm sort of the first one to say, oh, I wish it was all, you know, full frame. You know, I wish this would just look just as good if I shot a DSLR. But to be honest, just the practicality of what we needed to do, we had to do, we were doing special effects, green screen, lock off, split screens, you know, doing, um, uh, and we wanted to uh, pop people on either sides of the frame and match frames and stuff and just do some technical stuff that we didn't, we couldn't really, DSLRs were not up to it because we couldn't really touch the camera so and light was going up and down so we had to rely on the uh, dynamic range of the camera to help us, you know, tie the frames together without really adjusting stuff. So uh, I just basically was just, it was, a, it was an interesting timing of this stuff coming out and me just having finished a killer week of red, 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 red across different environments and just thinking, wow, I just really, I'm actually back, you know, back to, don't want to turn this all into a whole pissing in the pocket of red episode but, you know, it was interesting sort of coming out of the week of just going, wow, I just think this is just now with MX and the stability and the just not a, not one technical issue. And I literally just finished, come straight from you from grading the whole thing in base light, and it just looks fantastic. I've got control. There's no hiccup with files. There's not, we didn't have one post-production hold up. I was editing over the long weekend with like literally six hours from editing eight spots, shooting eight spots to being able to cut them eight spots. So no post hold-ups. Everything now is just at this real sweet spot, I think, of, uh, you know, just be happy with what we've got because it's, it's really, really stable now and it's looking great. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we shoot all the time with RED and all the time with SLRs. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And, you know, for every time where... I, well, okay, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the O-Week video that's coming out for FX PhD, we shot a shot of John and I in Amsterdam 
Now, I could not have taken the red one to Amsterdam because I had carry-on luggage only from London, yeah. where I was filming for the week, and just being able to take a 5D in my backpack and whip it out in Amsterdam and film a shot was the difference between getting a shot and not, not getting a good. shot. Hmm. That being said, the shot had exposure issue problems that I would have completely solved in a red one that we couldn't solve in the... Um, in the, the SLR, in yeah. the Canon. And, and so not having shot, to go into base light to solve it. You could yeah. have just solved it on your desk. And the, the, the shot, I've got to tell you, is, uh, is a little disappointing, <laughs> partly because it cuts right to Ed Moore's stuff <laughs> after it uh, in London, which, of course, was shot with controlled lighting and looks terrific, also on an SLR. It's almost like, hmm, this is what Mike can do, and this is what Ed can do. <laughs> no, no, but it's not like that. No, but no, no, it isn't. It is? No, it isn't. Um, the point is, though, that, you know, like, uh, so... Well, the advantage of having that SLR was that we got the shot. The disadvantage was that we didn't have the dynamic range to grade it to look as nice as we could have because it wasn't good exposures because it was on the streets of Amsterdam. Mm. Um, i, I got to say, I just don't see this as a world where I have to be limited to just one camera. I, you know, yeah. and it's not even like financially, oh, well, you're really rich, you can afford all this crap. It's not like that. It's just that you're a professional. You have a bunch of tools. You solve a bunch of tools, solve a bunch of problems, do things differently. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, you, if you have the SLR, you just have to think different and employ professionals to do it rather than someone who doesn't even know what the custom presets are. Are you having a look at me when you say that? <laughs> no. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, no, no, but okay, okay. Well, anyway, look. Um, anyway. That being said. Um, having said, have we got a negative red story here somewhere? God, someone here. No. Honestly, I, I, uh, I really <laughs> I just think, apart from me just being appalled at the behavior of some of the, uh, the bloggers out there, um, <laughs> Hey, what we think we should do now is go to your interview um, with the guys uh, going out into low orbit space yeah. um, because I'm, I'm really curious to solve this problem about why the hell they've got an overheating problem in space or at least why they don't have a lack of overheating problem in space. Yeah, well, I did, I did, I did sort of immediately sort of go, what? Huh? Because when they first did, I'll give you a bit of backstory because there's not a lot of backstory in the interview, uh, is that the original, um, <laughs> he said, now having not, not having his notes in front of him, but the original jump uh, was literally done, you know, uh, 60 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, it was literally like uh, a 16 mil gun camera strapped to a balloon uh, with water bottles taped around it to keep it warm. And uh, it was essentially like one pointing straight down to the clouds. And uh, Joe Kittinger, the original uh, parachutist, just literally just jumping away from the camera and just disappearing to the clouds, and that was it. So obviously now, um, 60 years on, we're obviously going to try and cover this thing from all angles. And we're talking live downlinks. Uh, three red cameras for points of failure and for angles. So he's basically going up very, 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 very high. Very, 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 very high. Jumping out. A technical term there. And at some point, having to, to, to decelerate enough to open a parachute without breaking his spine. Well, because you're going so very high, the atmosphere is very thin, and you can then essentially break the speed of sound. Because, okay, because... Which you, Joe Kittinger, the original jumper, didn't do. He got close. Because, as anyone that knows anything about physics knows, there's a... There's obviously gravity is a constant. Things accelerate through gravity, but there's a point at which you hit terminal velocity where the wind resistance stops you from accelerating anymore. Exactly, and your terminal velocity is dependent on the wind resistance uh, on the atmosphere and how, you know, how which thin is the air is. How thin the air is, right. So in the original jump, I think, whatever, it was 109,000 feet, and now they're going to attempting to do 120,000 feet. Uh, there's a significant, significant enough difference in the atmosphere that uh, we expect that um, Felix 
the uh, jumper will be breaking the speed of sound, which has not been done before. So there's plenty of firsts here. The altitude, the jump, and breaking the speed of sound on the way down. Okay, now at some point he'll get low enough in the altitude that he'll just deploy a chute and then land, presumably, normally, uh, in one sense. Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> as opposed to what? <laughs> well, no, no, but I just like like it's heading uh, for a pool. No, no, there's not a there's not a special descent uh, series of shoots or anything. Which is uh, I didn't get into the technicalities of the des- des- series of the descents because I've been aware of this from some YouTube stuff talking about. I haven't heard your interview, but I heard yeah. about the thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, even how he because I've seen the training videos, how he's going to step off the actual platform is really really significant to the success of the project. Everything is uh, so incredibly planned, and that's why they don't actually have a he will jump on this date day because they're doing this in, in, incredibly right. And as we did touch on in the interview, this is full on thanks to, to Red Bull for doing this right. They've got even Joe Kittinger, the original guy who jumped, is involved, and he's you know working with them and a lot of the original flight surgeons, a lot of people involved in the original program. And they are, there is no... I mean, this is not a kind of mission where you can... This is not a publicity stunt. This is not a publicity stunt. I mean, obviously, they're attached to it and they're getting publicity out of it, but this is... There is no expense spared, and they have, they, yes, have not got a, they have not got a date yet. Well, the world's media will meet at this point here to right. watch it jump. It's all about uh, working to getting it right, and then we will announce okay. when we're going well, to do it. Let's hear the interview. Well, firstly, thanks for taking the time, Jay, to talk. I know you're insanely busy right now. The original Project Excelsior used a couple of 16mm gun cameras, protected with water bottles from the minus 70 degree temperatures it's probably safe to say 50 years on we've uh, we've moved on a bit yes absolutely it's it's quite a different uh, quite a different world we're in now so give us a rundown of the the cameras you're using to cover the project obviously the project itself is is, is quite outstanding but no doubt the cameras used to cover the event are going to be um, something else as well yeah, there's we use several different formats of cameras, and in those formats, there's even more um, uh, manufacturers and types of cameras. The um, there's several missions that I've kind of been uh, tasked with in Stratos. One is to provide um, a live um, signal to the ground so that the television production trucks and the uh, webcast and livecast will have some images that they can show um, immediately. There's also the recording of high-definition images uh, to be used later, and then there's also the recording of uh, digital cinematography images that could either be used for a film out later. Um, the footage of Stratos might possibly be used as part of an IMAX feature in the future, so we had actually looked at the possibility of flying IMAX cameras at one time, but it just wasn't feasible. So we figured, well, the best we can do is, uh, you know, 4K. Yeah. And apparently 4K is printed to um, 20 per 70 millimeter, um, I guess, rather often these days. So it, we felt that that was the right way to archive this kind of historical event. You know, we had to get the best images we could. So we were able to get three red cameras uh, in positions that we could uh, record, you know, this ultra high definition imagery, and then of course the nine HD cameras, which record locally um, HD, and then they transmit down a down converted 
um, SD signal for the broadcast. Yeah, this is not just covering the event, or not just recording it for posterity. This is, you know, it's a TV event, a live event, and obviously then you've got to record on multiple formats for for uses as yet unknown. Right, and that, and fortunately, I actually have a background in both, uh, you know, um, filmmaking as a DP, but I also was involved in live television many, many years ago, which is a totally different um, business. I, I mean, I think a lot of people think there's mu- not much difference between film and television, that it's just the medium, but they're two totally different worlds. The business ends are different. The uh, workflow is different. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of people have trouble crossing from one to the other, but I just happen to be one of those people that, you know, was fortunate enough that I was able to do both and, and, uh, and get, fairly proficient at it i guess so yeah. so this is that type of thing you know the broadcast um requirements are very different than the bbc's requirement for their documentary that they're shooting so and and that's a key thing you know is that it, there may be an imax film down the road but the main uh storytelling aspect is the bbc documentary um so they're shooting that um on hd but the 4K image, you know, will be uh, will be some really fantastic stuff to drop into their piece as well as the HD footage. So your day to day is really preparing for the mission, which is essentially a NASA launch. In fact, today we did a dry run of uh, the chamber tests that we're going to be doing um, next week with the capsule, and that's exactly what we discussed: is that T minus this time, this needs to happen, and. You know, we have a pre-flight checklist for getting all the housings ready first and then getting the electronics ready. Um, Half of the capsule's electrical system is dedicated to the payload, which is, you know, which is the the flight term for all our camera systems where the payload on board the capsule. And uh, it's an extremely complex system, and it takes 15 minutes just to just to power everything on. Well, let's take it through what what uh, how you're rigging the reds and the other cameras, essentially, and obviously the hostility of the environment they're heading into, and how you're going to cope with it. Yeah, my company, Flightline Films, um, has developed a lot of uh, camera systems or modified existing camera systems to work in space uh, without any additional housings or environments required. Um, so, and that's the situation with the HD cameras and a lot of the uh, monitors and other equipment. The red cameras, because they're uh, such a complex device and they have internal fans and they generate a lot of heat, as you know, red users will know. Mm-hmm. They just there was just no way that we could make that operate in a vacuum. There, you have to um, get the heat out of the systems and out of the boards. So the only way to do that is to let the fans do their job and they need a convective medium which is normally air to take the heat away so what we've done is uh, designed and built pressurized camera housings they look very similar to an underwater camera housing except underwater housings um, they have to fight the buoyancy of having air inside them when you place them in the water they normally try to go to the surface so they make those very heavy to counteract the buoyancy because we're going the other direction, going up, everything has to be as light as possible. So these are extremely thin-walled aluminum housings. Um, we have to pressure test everything to triple their operating pressure to meet the safety guidelines of the uh, 
the science team. And inside these housings, we use nitrogen, which is a dry gas, to um, create the atmosphere for the reds and also for a, a digital still camera and an HD camera. There's actually three cameras in each one of these housings. So the nitrogen being a dry gas, we don't have issues with condensation on the inside of the optical port in front. And the fans can do their job. They can move, uh, you know, move this gas around and reject heat. And then we have a system of uh, a heat exchanger inside each one of these housings that is, uh, actually takes the heat out of the housing to a, uh, through a, a, a pump system. It's very similar to a car's radiator. Flows uh, the fluid through, takes the heat out of the housing. It's cooled down at a main chamber inside the capsule and then recirculated. So it's not relying only on the, the gas inside the the housing itself. You actually you circ there is some circulation outside the fans itself, right? Because eventually you would heat up the gas inside yeah. the housing, and then that would heat the shell of the housing. And once you're in space and there's no atmosphere to convect that heat away from the housing, it basically just stays, you know, in the object that's getting hot, and it just continues to get hotter until it stops working. So the cold of um 120,000 feet isn't enough to uh, keep these things cold. We need to then circulate as well. Space is such an interesting place. You know, on the way up, things are getting very, very cold, uh, down to minus 70 degrees Celsius when we hit uh, like the 50,000-foot level. So at that point, we don't need the cooling system. There is air, a usable amount of air density outside the housings that will take the heat away. But once you get into the... Uh, vacuum of space or near space, even though it's extremely cold, you don't have those air molecules or as many of them to take the heat away. So really the only way for the heat to get out is to either radiate out, which is not that effective, or you need to have some sort of cooling system. And then are the cameras themselves monitored as well? You mentioned, obviously, like, like any sort of aerospace venture, weight is always an issue. Are they monitored in any way, the cameras themselves? Uh, yeah, we have made some modifications to the RED, and uh, the folks over at RED were fantastic in accommodating our requirements. There was there was a handful of changes we needed to make for them to be space rated. So you've got three cameras on board uh, in, in the housing, in each housing. Uh, I'm presuming spinning media is not going to work for us up there. We're going to need something not just for that's going to suit the pressure, but also recording time is probably an issue. Right. Um, yeah, that, those are all issues. Um, I, when I was putting the system together, I really wanted to shy away from any mechanical recording system. Uh, so tape was out. Um, plus, it would be tough to get um, the record time that we needed out of tape. Hard drives could have worked um, inside the pressurized housing, but there is the possibility of a uh, failure where the gas leaks out of the housing. And if that's the case, there's a good chance that we could get those cameras to operate for maybe another 15 minutes in a vacuum, but the hard drives would immediately stop working uh, because they can't work in a vacuum. So what we're using is uh, all uh, solid-state RAM recording. Um, uh, RED um, had developed a um, custom drive for us, which I believe now, a year later, I think you can buy it. It's yeah. a 512 uh, gig uh, uh, red RAM drive. And uh, we had the first one, <laughs> you know, a year ago. Um, and it worked great. And like I say, I think now the price came down to the point where it's something that you can buy. But um, 
the the Reds will not run for the entire mission due to um, uh, power management issues and temperature issues. They actually come on every so often, record a little bit, and then they'll be running a lot um, when Felix actually jumps. The HD, on the other hand, we do record uh, the entire mission, and we're using uh, Panasonic P2 recorders um, inside our electronics cage, which is basically like a flying uh, production truck. Um, and those um, with the P2 RAM cards uh, recording ABC, we can get four hours and 16 minutes of record time out of those. So the, the flight profile right now, or at least it's the estimate, because you know it could have a um, it could change due to uh, weather conditions the day of the flight. Um, there's a lot of variables, but right now we're planning on a two and a half hour ascent. So two and a half hours from launch until uh, altitude, um, and then you know there could be a possible hold of 15 to 20 minutes. Felix then jumps, and then uh, you know after he lands, and we've successfully covered that. Um, our next task is to uh, record the capsule being released and its descent, which could take uh, up to an hour. So it, we're prepared for uh, four, four hours and 16 minutes of constant recording. Right. You've also got a DSLR in the capsules as well. Right. We have three Canon 5Ds, um, which have been modified by Flightline to... Um, operate in a vacuum. Two of those uh, are in the pressurized housings uh, with the REDs and the HD cameras, so they didn't really need much done to them. Uh, but one is inside the interior of the capsule, which for the most part, it's pressurized to, uh, I believe it's uh, a pressure equal to 16,000 feet, which is not that difficult for any device to handle. But when Felix uh, uh, depressurizes the capsule before he opens the door to step out, all the devices in there need to be able to operate in a vacuum and also in the in the cold. So, so we make some mods to these, you know, cameras and devices, and then we test them um, at the you know the temperatures down to like minus forty degrees Celsius and um, in a vacuum and confirm that they work. What are the mods required for a five D to run in a vacuum and or its lenses? Um, you know, a lot of those mods are proprietary. <laughs> so I can't go into a lot of detail. Um, but what are we? I mean, what's the what's the issue? I suppose we're trying to solve. Yeah, there. Um, some of the issues are uh, certain components, electronic components, fail in a vacuum. Um, they're just designed to work in, um, you know, having air around them, uh, or the pressure of the atmosphere around them. Right. Other components uh, will overheat. You know, uh, um, an IC that sits on a circuit board works great here in the atmosphere because the heat dissipates to the board. It travels out the traces and finds its way out of the housing. As soon as you get things into a vacuum, um, little components that worked fine suddenly will overheat and pop. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of modification that needs to be done. So the manufacturers are sort of relying on the fact that there is air inside the camera as a, uh, a kind of a heat sink. A lot of them are. Uh, there's other issues that we deal with. I mean, one thing that we used to deal with um, with the older cameras was high voltage. Air acts as an insulator um, between uh, high voltage contacts. And when you get into a vacuum, a lot of times you'll get arcing. 
um, you know, that'll take out the equipment. Wow. Uh, we don't have that issue with any of the equipment here. And then there's also the issue of, um, um, and, and it's not a big problem for us at the altitudes that we're at, but at really high altitudes, you have to worry about uh, cosmic uh, rays and subatomic particles actually penetrating the housings and going in and hitting the electronic boards and uh, wreaking havoc in digital systems. Because we are sort of more than halfway towards the edge of space, really. Uh, there are issues optically in terms of you know what the pre- you know pressure and or lack of lack of atmosphere is doing light wise. Um, yeah, optically, you know, it's brighter up there because the sun isn't the direct sunlight's not passing through the atmosphere, which filters out some colors and also decreases the brightness. Uh, so that's one thing you have to take into account. And the other one is that um, just at least from an aesthetic standpoint, and also I guess a data gathering standpoint, you don't have the sky above you um, uh, filling in the shadows. So it's a very harsh direct light. Picture if uh, the sun was up but the sky was black, which is exactly the way it looks. Uh, you know, at night, um, you would have you know the bright side or the lit side of something is going to be many, many, many stops brighter than the dark side, and you don't have that that huge skylight that normally fills in the shadows and makes a um, a, a more workable exposure latitude. So is there anything you can do filtration-wise? I mean, obviously you're shooting, for the Reds at least, you're shooting raw. So you've got a little bit of latitude um, than they would have had on a 16mm gun camera. But um, is there something filtration-wise you can... Is, how can you help it? Yeah, filtration-wise there's not a whole lot. In the interior of the capsule, as the sunlight propagates through the portholes and through the front door, uh, you know, you get this very bright light. So we have a space-rated... Um, LED array that we designed and built and it creates a whole lot of foot candles to fill in those shadows inside the capsule. Once he steps out onto the ledge before the jump um, there's not a whole lot you can do. I mean if we could put a, a 20 by 20 grifflon <laughs> you know floating out to the side that would be great but we can't. Um, so basically what we've done is we just have enough cameras that um, at the time of the jump um, we'll have one that that is on the sunny side and not, you know, not having him totally backlit. Right. Um, so because you do have to make the choice, you're either gonna expose for the dark stuff and blow out the bright stuff, or you know, or get the bright stuff and then have mm. pitch black shadows. So obviously, the, all of this is designed to, if there's a communication breakdown, that it can all run remotely. But uh, all going to plan, you have control of a lot of this stuff from from ground control. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we have a telemetry system that uh, uh, Riedel uh, Communications uh, built for us, and it allows us to control the um, the a lot of the cameras and systems powering on and off. Some of them are turned on on the ground, and only the pilot can turn those breakers on or off or power those devices down. But we have a control out of a, over a lot of devices that we need to. Uh, manage for power consumption or heat, and then we also have control over um, on the HD cameras all the basic paint functions and shutter speed. On the Reds, we have control of the boot up cycle, uh, start the recording, and the uh, iris on the lens. Right. Um, and then if there's should we lose that telemetry system, we do have a fail safe in place where. Um, we basically 
uh, added circuitry to all of the P2 recorders and the red cameras so that upon uh, being hit with power for the first time, they run through whatever their boot up sequence is and automatically default to recording so that in the, in the event of loss of telemetry, Felix can just simply cycle the breakers that we tell him to and as soon as the camera resets, it'll go into record. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, whatever happens, you're getting this on film. Well, you know what <laughs> That's I mean. Right. <laughs> That's right. Get the shot. So if it does go into auto and you lose telemetry, uh, iris-wise, what happens with exposure? Uh, we hope that the exposure we set when we lost telemetry was the right one. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, there's no way to locally control uh, exposure. Now, when Joe Kittinger jumped in 1960, he it was pretty much he just jumped and see on, on, on Earth. There was... N- I think now Felix is going to have a camera on him as well. Yeah, Felix will have three cameras on him, all HD. There will be one on each thigh. One aims up uh, towards him. One aims down towards his feet. So regardless of his attitude, whether he's going feet first or head first, we can see the earth and see the capsule and the balloon receding. And then there's also a camera um, that I have on top of the chest pack, um, which you know, we a lot of people said, well, you're going to put a camera on the helmet, right? And, well, it's like, well, unless you see the helmet, having a camera on the helmet doesn't do a whole lot of good um, because it could be anywhere on his body, and 25 miles up in the air, the Earth is going to look the same. So, you know, the perfect thing would be to see Felix's face yeah. and get some emotion and get some reaction and see what he's going through as he descends. So uh, there was a lot of elaborate designs in the beginning of trying to get a camera out in front and a little bit further away, like at least arm's distance away to get this shot. But the science team, uh, you know, killed all that because of the safety issues. You know, there's not a lot of data on when a man uh, goes supersonic on what happens, obviously, because nobody's done it. This will be the first time. Yeah. It's so the, the way the shock waves move across a person's body is still unknown, and it was thought that anything that was protruding out of them or sticking out of them could either get broken off in the shock wave or possibly get caught up in the in the lines when the chute deploys. So this camera that's on the chest pack looks up to the visor. We may see his his face through the smoked visor, but at least it's the closest thing to the human element. You know, at least we know there's the man behind the you know behind the helmet. So what cameras are you using and how are you recording them? Uh, we use uh, GoPro HD cameras. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I think that's fantastic. It is. I was expecting and, something a bit more high-tech than a $300 surfing camera, but I think it's fantastic. <laughs> well, we use two other cameras, but I can't tell you what those are because they're proprietary. <laughs> but I can tell you that the, one of those three cameras is a GoPro and those guys have been fantastic and really cooperative uh, in, in you know, getting us what we needed when we needed it. And, uh, and yeah, that's, it's, uh, it's a great little camera. It's, yeah, like you said, it's amazing, the picture that comes out of that. It's so film-like. I love it. Now, I hope the answer to this is true. Is any of these cameras going to be live? Uh, none of the cameras on the suit will be live. There was, you know, we had talked about that. I mean, we talked about a lot of things when this started. Uh, you know, that's always been kind of my um, my mode of operation on these is just to try to get as many impossible shots as possible and and get them you know get them all down to to the ground. 
Um, it could have been done, but uh, the science team um, didn't like the idea of the the amount of power required for a video transmitter, an omnidirectional transmitter, to put out the signal from that altitude and be received on the ground was just not really a healthy amount. Yeah, I guess that's where um, GoPros really come into their own, I suppose, self-powered. The, the biggest thing really is battery systems. You know, batteries don't do great in cold, so you got to kind of you got to kind of head that off. So, obviously, uh, you didn't just get this gig because you put a couple of nice uh, YouTube videos on. Um, Flightline <laughs> Flight Films, is this is your playground here, isn't it? Right. I've been an aerial cinematographer since 1984 and done a lot of uh, filming out of uh, helicopters and fixed wings for motion pictures and commercials. And I still do a lot of that. And there's, you know, there's maybe two handfuls of people that do that regularly and um, and it's a it's a good little group to be associated with, and it's a lot of fun. But as um, you know, as as I saw the uh, the space programs slowly moving from NASA and the government to uh, commercial space and private space, and me being a space enthusiast ever since I was a kid, I thought, well, you know, that's going to be the next frontier is aeros. <coughs> excuse me. That's going to be the next frontier is going to be aerospace cinematography, you know, cameras that are designed to work in a vacuum, uh, that can work in the temperatures and the other parts of the hostile environment of space, and also crews that have experience, um, you know, operating these systems. Because eventually there's going to be documentaries filmed in space and feature films at some point. Um, so there's just a handful of zero-G qualified cameramen I'm one of them. I've uh, flown in the uh, the Vomit Comet several times and filmed various uh, things and commercials. And I also have full pressure suit experience, um, which is something not everybody takes well to because of the uh, claustrophobia that sometimes um, ensues. Uh, so that's kind of the company plan is to provide these camera systems, uh, optical ground tracking systems, and, um, you know, all the equipment and crews necessary to support, you know, this emerging private space program. Is there any other, any other challenges that you weren't expecting along the way? Is there any, any other sort of gotchas that, uh, that that's a newie for you guys, even for you guys? Um, yeah, there's always new stuff and new challenges. Um, you know, this system, we're trying to make the capsule as light as possible, um, the lighter it is, obviously, the higher it will go, and you know we want to make sure that um, that we get the altitude that they're aiming for or higher. Because there's not a lot of margin between the current record from 1961 at 113 or so thousand feet to your aim, which is 120,000. Yeah, the current record that Joe Kittinger said is 102,800 feet. Is that another 20 percent higher, almost 20 percent? Um, but yeah, getting back to what you were saying. Uh, you know, the challenges on this and, and pretty much every airborne system is just to make it as light as possible. But, you know, there's a lot of safety concerns. So, you know, we'd like to make those housings thinner and lighter, but, you know, they can't be because they have to withstand a, a triple pressure test. They also need to withstand a high G landing um, devices that are on a, a space plane or an aircraft that lands on a runway 
they don't necessarily need to endure high G's except maybe, uh, you know, in the case of a, a rocket plane, there may be some G's that you're pulling on takeoff. But we have uh, high G's when the uh, parachute deploys, and we have high G's on landing because it, it is very much like a, you know, a traditional Apollo capsule except that it's landing on the ground and not in the ocean. Is Felix himself much of a shooter, or has he got an eye, or have you got much of a sense of, of his thoughts on the whole photography process? Yeah, Felix is great. He really does think like a cameraman, and he's so used to having cameras on his body when he does the base jumping that uh, unlike a lot of other people in other fields, and we run into this a lot on, on aerial photography, whether it's air-to-air you know, of people just not being comfortable with the cameras, not wanting them attached to things, not knowing what's going to happen. And, you know, working with Felix is such a pleasure because he wants the cameras there. He wants the images. He understands how important it is to capture this historical event. Uh, so it makes my job, you know, all that much easier. Obviously, we were trying to document the entire mission, but what's going to be the final uh, result of the project filming? I've been given uh, several tasks as far as uh, what needs to be documented and how. One is to support the BBC documentary. They're making a feature about the Red Bull Stratos program. And so we need to deliver to them very high-quality HD images. And the, uh, the red cameras will deliver uh, just glorious 4K footage that will work wonderfully in that feature. And in addition to that, we also have the possibility of maybe providing footage to an IMAX film uh, later on. So the 4K is a wonderful format for supporting that printout to um, 70mm IMAX. And then, of course, there's supporting the live broadcast which and the live webcast, uh, which is our, uh, our downlinked transmitted video signals, which will be routed to the various media to be incorporated in those TV shows. So you're working pretty deeply with the BBC on this, I guess. Yeah, we, um, we want to be very aware of their needs and deliver the footage that they require to tell the story accurately. Since I have a background in cinematography, I kind of approach all of these camera angles and placements from more of a stylized viewpoint than a technical viewpoint. So where if you look at a lot of the images that are on uh, the uh, space shuttle or the uh, rockets, uh, the external tank, or the solid rocket boosters that lift the shuttle, they're basically designed to, to gather data, and they're very technical in nature. And you'll see the exposure might not be wonderful, and they're usually not high definition. Whereas my approach is I want jaw-dropping, fantastic images that can be projected on the big screen and you know make everybody say wow so this is very much aligned with what the BBC is doing so as soon as they came on board it was uh, you know we saw that we were both on the same page and it's worked out really well fantastic well clearly you're as a fellow space nut I'm I'm incredibly jealous that you're living the dream where the hell, but where the hell do you go from here when this is done? You know, how do you top this gig? Yeah, well, um, the uh, the next thing will be supporting the private space sector, and uh, like I said, providing uh, camera systems inside the cabins of spacecraft to record passengers or scientific experiments. Cameras on the exterior of these vehicles 
to uh, not only gather, you know, great image to use for marketing, but also for situational awareness to the flight controllers so that they know um, how various portions of the vehicle are performing. Um, we also have uh, Flightline Films has two ground-based optical tracking systems, which are mobile, and these are basically uh, huge uh, uh, telescopes that have uh, cameras plugged into the back of them. Um, we use the red camera on uh, the ground trackers, usually in the 2K mode running 120 frames per second. We also record HD, and then we use um, more military-type sensors like shortwave infrared and midwave infrared for target acquisition and to aid in the tracking process. So these optical uh, ground tracking systems, uh, which are called the J-Layers, uh, they're capable of tracking these suborbital vehicles, you know, from takeoff to apogee, uh, you know, and all the way to the return to Earth uninterrupted. Well, that, that's a whole podcast in itself. The tracking rigs are the modern-day version, the classic thing we've seen, you know, tracking Apollo launches and lenses, I guess, that are measured more in feet and inches than millimeters in terms of their focal length. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, it's not uncommon to have a 160-inch or... 320 inch uh, telescope you know which is in the thousands of millimeters but yeah in fact these trackers were used to uh, track the Apollo uh, launches and the space shuttle I'm just okay now I'm lost for words <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like just, you said it's uh, a whole just, other subject yeah that sure is <laughs> well I, thank you Jay for taking the time today I'm just beyond pleased that you had the time to talk and beyond jealous uh, I just I hate you and love you simultaneously thank you <laughs> is there uh, anything else I mean obviously you guys live in the world of cool is there anything that still astounds you that is very cool about this mission stuff that you thought well couldn't get any better and there it was um, I think the thing that astonishes me about this mission is uh, one uh, Joe Kittinger who's on our team and he's a wonderful person you know that that when he did it in 1960, it was human willpower uh, overcoming obstacles. And they did it uh, with the technology they had at hand, and they did it well and were successful. And here we are, you know, all these years later with a whole different um, set of technology, for, not only for camera systems, but for the launch and the capsule. Um, but it, it all gets back to that that human element you know of Felix doing this and being the uh, the catalyst that brings it all together and you know w when it comes time for the jump just like Joe it's going to be a man standing on a step and he's going to decide when he's going to jump and after that it, you know it's all him it's terrific yeah exactly it comes down to uh, just literally a man standing at the door staring out into into space and uh making that decision to go the whole team is wonderful uh sage cheshire aerospace who built the capsule and uh, is um you know putting together all those systems and the life support the uh, flight surgeons just everybody is such a pleasure to work with and as we continue on the project the team just keeps gelling more and more and and it's it's really becoming that finely tuned um, machine that everybody strives for. Before we go any further, full marks to Red Bull for funding this entire venture. It's a not inconsiderable thing to get started and fund this mission. And also thanks to them for uh, teeing up this interview as well for us to be able to talk. It's an incredibly big thing of them to undertake.
Yeah, working on the Red Bull Stratos mission has just been a fantastic ride, and it, it, this wouldn't be happening if it if it wasn't for Red Bull. There's many people that have tried to do this and are still trying to do this, and it it does take some money to do it correctly. And Red Bull assembled the best of the best, uh, from the science team to uh, the aerospace team. Um, it, it's just a it's a pleasure to be working with this many professionals who are all on the same path and everything's being done right, which is what's important, uh, you know, from a safety standpoint, uh, all the way to me with the documentation standpoint. So obviously there's a couple of fantastic websites for people to go to to find out more, and you've got those, Jay? Sure, yeah, to find out uh, more about the Red Bull Stratos program, uh, go to redbullstratos.com, which is uh, pretty easy to remember. And if you want to find out more about my company, go to flightlinefilms.com, and you can see a lot of uh, pictures and videos and information about what we do. Again, thank you, Jay, for your time. I really appreciate it, mate. Stay safe, and good luck with the mission. Please keep in touch. You will be hearing from me when we start to hear murmurs of uh, space tourism. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Okay, so that makes perfect sense now because, I mean, obviously when you, when you hear him explaining it, the, the idea of not having enough oxygen or rather not air to, to cool things makes perfect sense. But I, I, there was so many aspects about that. I mean, baking the sound barrier and worrying about cameras actually being ripped off his body because of the, the shock concussion. Shock waves. Compression yeah. waves. Mm. Wow. I just love the fact that they're jumping with, <laughs> jumping with GoPro. You've got to love GoPro. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, this is a serious good GoPro. Thinking that that'll be on their, their NAB reel. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be it. That would just be their NAB reel. But it? what I'd love to do, as I say, I'll catch up with Jay at some other stage when he's post this mission because uh, I'll put a couple of shots in the show notes where just like there is some – this guy has got some serious uh, kit. I don't mean to be sort of fawning and simplistic about it, but, you know, uh, the um, – uh, you know the the tracking vehicles that they have, the uh, visual tracking stuff, um, and you know air to air. Just being the whole idea. I just love what the business card says. Just aerospace cinematographer. I just that's just yeah. jealous. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's got to be a bit of that in there. Okay, we have one more interview coming up for you later in the show. It's the one that we promised from last week, which is in our gear section, uh, covering the uh, ninja stuff to do with uh, solid state recording off the. Hard drives coming out of the side of a SLR um, mm. product that's going to be released slightly later in the year. The Atomos Ninja. <clears throat> yep. Um, mm. But I guess we should just shift gears completely now and have our gear section. I guess so. There's uh, a little bit of gear. Well, there's actually there's a couple of bits of gear to touch on before that. Is uh, what's uh, there's a bit of a, a war on between Red Rock Micro and Zakuda at the moment about launching uh, what has been, I've been welcoming for a long time and wanting for a long time is what everyone's, I guess, been struggling with is the whole thing of uh, viewfinders, the LCDs on the back of the cameras, video villages, HDMI splitters and everything. So obviously what um, has been coming for a while from both these manufacturers is uh, little miniature electronic viewfinders, which are uh, obviously replacing the um, LCD on the back, not only just to get you some slightly better resolution and the better ability to focus stuff, but also where you can put your eye and where the camera can go on your shoulder. Because obviously, what's what's nice about the 
classic design of, of you know proper film cameras is that they sit more on your shoulder and the weight is more central on your shoulder and the eyepiece is out more in front of the camera or beside the lens. Whereas at the moment, obviously, there's an entire industry in DSLR rigs with counterweights and all of the weight, as you well know, Mike, is right out in front of you. Mm. And it's a right pain because your eye is, has to get to the LCD on the back of the screen through a, you know, a Z finder or any other kind of viewfinder on the back of the camera. So uh, what... Um, so in the show notes, I mean, I won't get into too much detail of this because a lot of the stuff is still coming. Uh, but Red Rock Micro have announced their Micro EVF, which is looks fantastic, looks sensational. I just love the idea that the ergonomics are slightly starting to. It is a little bit, little bit too late because you know cameras are evolving, and I'm sure beyond before long we're going to have cameras that can do this kind of thing soon. We're already seeing uh, I mean, it with think, the 60D and stuff. I think having an EVF self. is a great idea. I mean, even though this looks to me a bit like a, a slightly small, super tech, high tech, black Coke can on it the side of your camera. It is looking big, but obviously in there is a battery that runs for 10 plus hours and an HDMI splitter. But 600 bucks for an EVF, it's That's, like, it's insane. And that is insane, given the fact that a Z Fire is like 400 or something. You know, the average good quality uh, yeah, loop I mean, is 400 or 400 I, bucks. Honestly, I, if, uh, if I was amazing. the Red Rock Micro guys, the only thing I'm, honestly, the only thing I'm worried about with Red Rock Micro now is that they're too generous and they're not going to stay in business. And I'm not saying that I've got any belief that they're going out of business. I think they're terrific. But yeah. every time Red Rock publishes a price, I'm like, what? Really? Yeah. I mean, the price of that, uh, the micro focus, the uh, yeah. iPhone focus stuff. Just all, guys, make sure you make enough money to keep going. We yeah. need you in the business. Yeah, don't, please don't, uh, stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not that I have any hint of anything. I'm not suggesting no, for no. a second that they're in any trouble. I'm just saying, like, how the hell you can make money on making an EVF for 600 bucks? I mean, I you know, can't imagine you could get the monitor screen. Yeah. Anyway. So this is all, obviously, in, uh, in, all in one. You've got the battery, the uh, viewfinder, all the loop, magnifiers, and uh, HDMI pass-through, which is obviously really critical because so having a pass-through is oh pass-through sorry is is awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic because it's obviously it's powered internally, and you don't have to have at the moment you have to have external M- HDMI splitters, and on yeah. some occasions power those as well. No, so, that's exactly what we had in London. Yeah, we had to have a splitter, and yeah, it's a total freaking pain in yeah. the ass. I mean, this is one of probably the major one of the many. This is actually undoing a lot of pain. The whole counterweighting yeah. thing the front the the weight forward issue this way is the less HDMI than six ounces. issue what's that this way is less than six ounces yeah it, I, I love red it rock looks rock kind rock. of chunky and stuff in this photo but i think it's actually gonna do quite well and i, I, I just love really that will. i want to really start re-engineering a rig so i can actually start putting it on your shoulder like an arton sitting right back there with your lens right next to your face rather than way out in front where you've got to feel it you know well, i gotta say nearly most of my stuff and, and I bought it, I paid cash, is, uh, is this Red Rock Micro stuff for my mm, rig. Yeah, I, no, I like look, it. absolutely. I've, all the stuff, a lot of, 50% of the sort of Korean stuff, you know, eBay knockoff stuff that I've done, as I've bought it to work out what I needed, I've replaced a lot of it with Red Rock. <laughs> and I, I'm the kind of person that does kind of research this. Now, shit, I will shit, also yeah. say that one of the few bits of my kit that isn't Red Rock Micro is the Secudo... Um, Finder. Finder at the back. Which you will need to, if you go with the Red Rock, with the Zacuto version. Now, which is... So, uh, so that is what, a monitor that I would... Like a separate... It's basically the fold-out monitor that I don't have on a 5D that's a full breakaway monitor that I would then put my Z yeah. on? This is probably more... This is more adaptable, but a little bit more expensive. Uh, obviously... 
This is a, essentially, yes, a 69 monitor, but it has a mount on the front so you can click on your Z Fighter right at the top of it. So I guess it's a, a, a break apart. You can t- separate the loop part from the monitor part. But why couldn't I just have this as a little monitor sitting out in front, like Absolutely, on my shoulder? you rig, could, indeed. And then I would just look at it like a normal monitor yeah. instead of trying to stick my Marshall, which is obviously quite large. Yeah, it's not going to be very big. It's going to be three, three inches. But it is like, it's like, yeah, as you say, it's like from the 60D or whatever. It's a repositional little monitor that you can you know, put on a hot shoe on the top of the camera. But how does the resolution of that little monitor compare to the back of the 5D's little monitor? That's an excellent question. Well, this is 800 by 480, the resolution. It's, it's slightly li- it's slightly better resolution i think it's slight i think the resolution on the back of uh, canons i oh, know i'll get this wrong but i think it's something like 680 by 480 or something like that okay, or well, 7 something so it's no worse so it's 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 very it's very slightly higher resolution than the, the okay, rear so no it's definitely me, no worse so you're telling me that i could if I, I could magically pop off the lcd off the back of my 5d exactly and, and move it six move inches out in front to the side and i would put find your, that very useful and pop or pop off your lc your your z finder onto it yeah, yeah, I think that's incredibly yeah, useful. That, that, is, that, is, that is great as well. Uh, it's a lot more expen- a little bit more expensive. It's $775. And obviously, of course, if you don't have a Z Finder, that'll be another 375 bucks on top of that. Can I just make a it's point here? It's not battery... The, yep, go ahead. The thing that I think is the, is the fail point on both of these solutions is something that they can't fix, which is that they both require a healthy HDMI on your Canon camera socket. Yep. Because my problem with these solutions yeah. is that the HDMI actual socket on the Canon cameras, it's fine on mine, but I have used other people's Canons where if you don't hold it a little bit to the left on a Thursday, right. it, it drops out. Mm. It's not a professional... I'm waiting for that to happen with mine, actually. Do you know what I mean? Not like it's great. not a professional. The, cameras are, the, the cables are so yeah. thick and stiff. They're putting a lot of force on those things. The person that comes up with, okay, this is terrific, $775, this stuff, all the thing, every single piece of technology we've talked about on this podcast will all be shat on from a great height if someone just comes on with a, a, a right angle mini HDMI or a slightly swivel, small, flexible, light, you know, like the cables that come out of an iPod or whatever. Light, tiny, no pressure on the socket. And a click on kind of like what you want is it to click into my Canon yeah. which obviously I, I want Canon to change the goddamn plug on the camera yeah. but but yeah I need something that's much more click on attached like a film camera tends to expect yeah no stress on the camera body and much yeah. nicer connection that's why some of, some of those a lot of guys like Viewfactor and I think I think uh, Jag 35 are coming up with these powered cages, essentially the exoskeleton to go around your camera, that then kind of, you kind of plug an HDMI lead into that once, and then that goes to an, it sort of, it kind of gives you an external uh, socket for HDMI away from the camera body. Because I love both of these, right? But I've got a friend with a 5D, and if I borrowed their camera, it would still drive me nuts, because on any given running down the street, Mm. the, the monitor would just stop working. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. look, it's a complete pain. And it's one of these things we're just going to have to deal with. In the meantime... In the meantime... In the meantime, we finally got we've my cube. cube. Now, Jason Wingrove has, has uh, expressed on this program before a view that his life would be complete if he was to get really a Teratech cube, which is a camera-mounted video encoder. Like, imagine a, a thing about the size... Well, I guess I can say this. I guess people know what the size of a cigarette packet is still. Still, um, sadly, they still do, yeah. A cigarette packet, but, but metal, not a plastic or, or carbon. That's, the, that's the first thing that sort of struck me when I picked it up, so, which the, the build quality is just stellar. 
And I had this bolted to uh, one of the reds throughout the week. And what's fantastic about it is that it's got a... Uh, first of all, obviously, I'll touch on you know, how the build quality. But you can unscrew the thing and just give yourself a quarter-inch bolt right through the middle and just bolt straight to the top of a red cheese plate. Or, you know, quarter-inch bolts are just, like, everywhere, all over you, <laughs> over reds and every sure, other, but, every but other let me, camera. Let me just finish and show you what it does. Yes, so, how about... Oh, so, what it does. So it's a... You see... It doesn't Jason's matter. It's life built brilliantly. So, Who cares? Jason's life is so complete, he won't even tell you what it does. Okay, so this is something about the size of a cigarette uh, packet, solid metal, good feel to it has an aerial antenna on the back. And the idea here is it's going to encode video that's going into it and then literally broadcast it so that you can watch it on a remote device, classic use of which would be on a steady cam rig, on a car mount, on a, any number of other places. So tell me, what is coming out of this aerial and what are you receiving the signal from this aerial on? Uh, anything, well, first of all, you can go directly to a laptop you can go direct to an iPad, but I'll touch on that in a minute. So obviously, when you say direct to, you mean it's, your it's laptop Wi-Fi. Or? It's essentially Wi-Fi. putting okay. HDMI. Yeah. We've touched on it before in a previous episode, a few back, a few back where I spoke to Rod Clark, yeah, uh, and from Teradek. It's uh, obviously we can go directly to via Wi-Fi to your laptop, and that's how I was using it. Basically, right, was uh, playing it through VLC, and I was getting really quite low latency of a hundred and like say about two hundred milliseconds. Uh, which is perfectly fine. The audio was coming brilliantly through the HDMI. Uh, I actually also was sitting on my editor's couch while she was editing, and I had the whole just testing it out. Just uh, was beaming it, uh, you know, quite quite a way through the editing room to uh, to my laptop and watching her cut from another room. <laughs> but uh, life is mostly complete, but it will be complete uh, when they bring out their uh, app for iPads, which is what probably attracted me and you to this whole, this device in the first place, the ability to carry a video split in my hand, in the palm of my, a nine inch, 10 inch video, uh, video split in the palm of my hand and be able to record. Playback, is there any reason why they haven't released an iPad app for it yet? Or is that just coming? Yes, there is. Okay. But you can't tell what it is? No. Okay. Well, is there any reason that it won't come? Uh, well, you can do it at the moment. You can stream to the iPad, but uh, the apps at the moment and what's available off the shelf leave you with about a 10-second uh, latency, yeah. which is really is unworkable. Yeah. But it can. it is fantastic to see it on an iPad working beautifully. And uh, so the image quality looks fantastic. So once they solve the 10-second delay... Exactly. But is it your expectation, speaking as Jason Wingrove, not as a manufacturer's representative, yes. that that will get fixed? Yes, Okay. Entirely. Because once in, that gets fixed, I mean, I've I got to tell you, I've been doing lots of car mount stuff lately. Yep. Really, really nice car mount stuff. But, oh, God, I would have loved to have been able to inside the car to monitor what was happening on the car rig outside the car. Yep. I've heard from um, uh, Nickel, the, uh, one of the guys at Teradek. I saw him on a podcast saying it was about seven, eight weeks, seven weeks away, away for the iPad um, app. But uh, that, you know, may be subject to change. Okay, well, uh, I'm very envious that you have this. I'm going to be more envious when it's you very get cool. an iPad. So obviously there's SDI version, there's an HDMI-only version. Uh, the other thing actually which they've literally just announced, which they were toying with doing, is also making a receiver. So you can literally have uh, essentially, 50, it's still Wi-Fi, but you can have, rather than have to receive it on, on a Wi-Fi device like a iPad or a laptop, you can beam straight to another mated uh, receiver and have HDMI or SDI out of that. And from all reports, it's like rock solid transmission and you know very very little gl- glitches. 
up till now you've had very very expensive seven eight nine ten thousand dollar microwave rigs mm -hmm. which are really subject to a lot of reflection a lot of ghosting and stuff uh this is you know so far in my limited testing has been rock solid and can i ask you two questions great. about this yes. firstly i want to use it on an slr so yes. there's no reason why you're using it on a red right but you could use it on both this is the you? sdi version obviously that i've got here now but, but i could use it on an slr if i wanted to yeah sure i mean there's two versions of it i'm just backing up a bit there's the hds there's the hd sdi version and the hdmi version uh, obviously, with HDMI to SDI adapters and stuff, you could use it. If primarily, obviously, your use is for, H it's for DSLR, you get the HDMI version and uh, then get all the, power, power, the correct power leads to, to sort of suit that, really. They are working on, H on 5D battery leads and all that sort of stuff to power it. Um, but uh, at the moment, you've got like the... Uh, it's got a Limo socket on the body, so you can go to um, XLR or DTAP, or they also have fly leads if you want to knock up your own gear. So obviously this is more pro, so it's a little bit more roll your own kind of, uh, um, you know, let you kind of work out what suits you right, because there's just so many, you know, options there power-wise. But they've got plenty of leads in, in, in the store, and uh, obviously the options of the, the two outputs. So, so at the moment, though, if I wanted to use it on a car mount rig, I would have to somehow run power to the unit to run it? Yeah, that's right. You have a have a, um, a V-Lock battery, I guess, run a D-Tap I mean, that. That's what I do on a Steadicam. Yeah, but. yeah, it runs 9 volts to 24 volts. So, you know, anything from out of a car battery to, you know, uh, 24 volts out of the back of a Panavision Gold. Oh, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? If you had like a car cigarette lighter mount thing that just let you, if you're doing car mount, you could maybe steal a yeah. cable out a window or something. Though uh, I must admit, I'd like it to have a lot of little... A little bit more pro than that, yeah. yeah. So there's definitely, you know, you can just get your standard 12-volt block battery and they've got the XLR versions of those cables. As I say, they've got the fly lead version to roll your own. Um, so the um, HDMI version with the Wi-Fi is like 1590 bucks, and the uh, SDI version with Wi-Fi is... Uh, two thousand, two thousand bucks. But uh, this is still streets ahead of what we're used to. You know, a lot of the transmitters have just been just regular old RF yeah. and quite shocking. And I, I tell you, I've dragged a lot of these things right around the world, and they've just been a, nothing but a pain. Particularly when you start getting into all sorts of radio interferences from uh, you know different radio channels and TV channels around the world are a right pain. Wi-Fi is pretty much Wi-Fi around the world, so you know the chances of uh, um, interference are probably really pre pretty minimal. And this is just going to be... this. It's it's good now, and it's clever, and it's handy now, but when the, that iPad app comes on, I, the, I, you're not going to stop me. Okay, well... Just love it. What, uh, what, what, sorry, go, sorry, go ahead. Um, they make a... Uh, they just announced a receiver for this thing. Oh, yeah? So it's essentially the same form factor, but uh, Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. So I guess on the other end, you can then take a HDMI or an SDI straight out of that. Again, similar pricing oh, for, for the, the like, receiver. Video village, so... Exactly right. right. So essentially just a video village from camera to video village uh, rather than um, to you know laptops and Wi-Fi. Obviously, video village can still use the Wi-Fi version. They just use a router and then they can... Um uh, then they can, you know, send it out to multiple iPads or multiple uh, laptops. But uh, you know, the ideal video village uh, solution would be to have, um, you know, have the SDI or HDMI out going straight into all their mix, their usual mixes and things. But this is still streets ahead, way cheaper, way more reliable, you know, than than what's out there for sure. 
Well, let's um, change uh, to another device that could make my life very good if it, uh, if and when it comes out. I'm sure it will come out uh, in December. This is something we mentioned earlier in the show. This is the Ninja uh, Recorder. It's a recorder that will take the uncompressed HDMI output from some cameras, convert it to ProRes as a little recorder, so it connects uh, directly to your computer after you've come off the shoot and FireWire 800 or eSATA or USB or whatever. Um, and it's going to record ProRes uh, HQ422. This is something that uh, John Montgomery managed to find at IBC. We promised you this interview, I think, a week or two ago on the show. So let's cross now to John. This is recorded, uh, as I said, about last month in uh, IBC in Amsterdam. Why don't you just uh, take us through what it does? So the Atomus Ninja is Atomus' first product. Um, what we've done is we've focused on what are the what are the key problems people are having with field recorder and base the product around that. So the first one is what's the storage? Um, we looked at it and thought, well, these standard notebook hard disks are cheap. They're like 40 US dollars for a 500 gig drive and they're only getting better as time goes by. Uh, so we just supply a plastic cover and allow the user to go and get their own hard disk um, and then they can record ProRes was the second decision. Uh, that's a clear winner for all kinds of reasons. Support with Final Cut, superb quality, uh, you know, a great integrated solution. And um, it records ProRes 4 to 2, for example, you'll get seven and a half hours of recording on that 500 gig drive. So that's a really versatile solution. It answers all kinds of questions about backup, transfer. Uh, we supply a dock that allows to connect via USB or FireWire to the computer. So you just plug the drive straight out of the unit, plug it in and drop it on the timeline and you're editing. Um, the unit has a, a TFT color display, so you can use it for monitoring and playback as well as recording. It's a, it's a touch screen. Uh, we've decided, we just deliberately tried to design the user interface to be, uh, to allow you one touch access to all of the settings you commonly use rather than having a, a, a joystick and a, a complicated menu system. It's, uh, if, you, if you see a setting displayed, you can touch the arrow next to that setting, and it will, next to that status rather, and it will take you to the settings. For, so for example, next to the audio status, there's a blue arrow. If you press that, it takes you straight to the audio settings page. Then it goes back to the main page, and so on for the battery and what time's remaining. Information's all tied to whatever status is on the screen. And then the final thing we looked at was the battery. And for portable situations, you've got to have a battery on the unit. Um, we designed the unit to be very low power, so it can run for a long time on these batteries. But the key, key idea we came up with was to have two batteries on there. It's a dual battery solution, but it only ever runs on one at a time. So when the battery is running on depletes, it automatically switches over to the other one. And you can see the status on the screen that the battery is depleted and take that battery out, charge it or put a fresh one on right away and when the second one is depleted it will switch over and make the first one again. So that way you can have a continuous power operation and hopefully takes away a lot of the headaches with batteries, battery use. Um, so with the HDMI input you're obviously concentrating a lot on you know, the, where the cameras are in the current market but I think one thing that you're maybe a bit surprised about here at IBC is the actual interest in the DSLR support which is frankly a bit tricky isn't it? Yeah, I've been absolutely amazed, actually, because I think about two-thirds of all the people that have come up to me have been asking about the DSLR solution. Um, 
I mean, obviously, with the, the, the advantages of the awesome selection of lenses, you know, what you can do with depth of field and the sheer quality of the sensor, um, there is a huge amount of interest. It's, it's, it's a little tricky with the DSLRs right now because to get a, what you want is a, a full 1080 uh, resolution display with no overlaid graphics. And um, I um, personally not, uh, it also depends on the firmware and the model. So uh, a complete run through, what we're planning on doing right away is we're going to look through all of the models and the latest firmwares and put up on our website our findings as to how you can connect it up and what you need to do to get your clean, nice HDMI signal recorded to ProRes. Because once you've got that solution, you're basically taking straight through the sensor, uncompressed through the HDMI, and a one-step compression to ProRes HQ, for example, will give you an amazing quality result. So. But there are also potentially some hurdles that are not actually in the initial reuse potentially, but things about dealing with an interlaced signal and getting something from 6EI, say, to uh, 24P or 23.98 as well. Yeah, that's an important consideration, and that's also information we'll be putting up there on the website, what our findings are about you know, whether there's pull-down in, in the image uh, I've been having a bit of a look in the evenings here with these cameras, and uh, I've seen what looks like pull down to me, but we need to actually analyze it properly in order to determine. So what's still not clear with this is what cameras it's going to work for, you know, what's going to be most compatible with it. Obviously, the whole concept of this thing is that for some cameras, the out HDMI output is going to be a little bit cleaner, less compressed, uh, and much better than what you would get if you went to its native recording format of P2 or, or you know, to HDV. So there's a lot of quite small, simple little HDV cameras that, quite, that compress as they go out to their HDV tape or to their SD card. But the HDMI source is clean. You can get all the menus off it and make it a nice, clean feed, and the compression is very minimal. So you're almost getting, you're getting as close to you can, that you can to a sort of raw file within you know, the video, with, still with Video World. Yeah, the thing about the 5D at the moment is it's like 1080i when it's not recording and it's yeah. 480p when it is recording. Now, of course, if you were using this, there's no reason why you'd have to record because you would take the output of the camera, HDMI output, and use it as the primary recorder. Yeah, and so it wouldn't different. go into record mode on the 5D. Yeah, there's so, no gain between the two. And, and the other advantage of doing that, uh, I mean, and for those of you who are going to ask, yes, you can get rid of the menus on your 5D. It takes quite a bit of work, but you can do it. The problem at the moment for me on that is that the 5D uh, is outputting a 30 frame per second um, signal. And, of course, if you can get the 3.2 pull down, decoding that in the recorder, you could turn that 30 back into 24 if the master camera setting was... Uh, 24 and it was adding 3.2 pull down in the camera. I just don't know about this enough because uh, once I found out it was 30 frames a second and once I was recording it was lower than that, I stopped investigating too hard. Uh, after I managed to crack getting rid of all the menus in the uh, 5D, I was like, okay. The main on. plus for it is obviously the fact that it's, you know, it's very, very cheap. Uh, 795 euros or a thousand, uh, essentially a thousand US bucks, and the ability for you to use your own um, off-the-shelf two and a half inch HDs in this thing, uh, or an SSD if you've got sort of. But also, we transcode transcode the 5D files anyway to ProRes, so I'd actually be recording in ProRes, which gives me kind of an advantage. I mean, obviously, I haven't got one of these to test it, but if I just plug this in as a FireWire 800 or USB 2, whatever, but it's already got all my files in ProRes, yeah. I would just start editing with them and I'm done for, for an interview kind of so thing. It's an, HDR, it's an HDMI version of that thing that you use a lot of time with your P2 camera, which is the FirePod or no, what is it? The thing that... The FireStore. FireStore. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And the FireStore is great. The trouble with the FireStore as... 
perhaps will be the cases. I don't know. Certainly with the Firestore. It's the same problem I think we were joking about with before is that the darn plugs on the P2 cameras are the kind of tiny little um, firewire kind of type mm, plugs yeah. that are notoriously prone to wobbling problems. You know, it's a secondary add-on market is these guys, uh, be um, viewfinders or this, do tremendous work, but they're limited at some point by the plug socket that's molded into the plastic Freaking of the original cables. camera. You know, going a lot of the way to making pro gear and then just fall down on the plugs and the sockets. And that, I think that's probably what defines a lot of cameras, difference between cameras. You know, is this, you know, you look on the back of, you know, some serious stuff, you know, Alexas and stuff that you can't find anything but like Limo plugs. And yeah. Stuff that is designed to be pulled in, pulled out, offer correct strain relief. If someone pulls on the cable, it's not going to rip the guts out of your camera and screw the whole thing. You you know just get you know get yep. another cable yep. or yep. plug it back in. Yep. <sighs> well, <laughs> size from Jason. Um, having said that, we problem. love the secondary market for producing some of these things that we can uh, we can work with. So look, um, we've run out of time, uh, and I'm sick of apologising for how long we run over. Though Jason did find someone that said that they loved listening to the show in two times speed, which given how fast we talk seemed absurd. Um, I will say that there's a really nice thing that happens at the moment is when something new breaks around the net, I actually get people emailing me saying, I can't wait till you and Jason talk about this on, um, on Red Center. It's not like you guys, I mean, people actually assume that we're going to talk about it. They assume they'll be interested in the discussion. Um, it's no longer a case of, Oh, if you guys happen to mention this, they know that we will. So I think that's great. And, I've got to also do a shout-out. Um, the reason that we got to do that interview earlier in the show with Michael um, about the work with Peter and Jim uh, is, again, because somebody actually uh, you know, sent us a link and that was a FX PhD member and uh, we really appreciate them doing that. Um, I don't think I can name them, so I won't. Um, but and I'm going to say the same with the Stratos interview. That link came to us from a, um, from a listener and I really appreciate it. And I'm going to be a right shit and not actually... I've been digging through my emails to try and find out who it was. So if, you, if you're the one that emailed me about that, that link, I know it's somebody that I know and I really apologise, but that link for the Red Strat, for the uh, Stratos uh, interview came to us via uh, a listener. So, you know, again, if you think of something, nothing's too weird, left field, right field, whatever, let us know. We really do appreciate it and next time we'll try and remember well, who I'll, it was. Well, I'll, I'll give the first name away of the guy that's just to show that I haven't forgotten. It was Mike. I'm just going to give you a surname because I think he can. Um, I still remember him in the email saying, keep it to yourself. But I'm, I'm sure that that's not giving anything away. But we really appreciate you guys. Uh, a lot of people actually contribute stuff to the show. Uh, we try whenever we can to, to thank you, but just as a general thanks. So if you see something around the net, um, send us a link, send us an email, uh, red at fxguide.com. So that's red at fxguide.com. We really, really do um, actually now rely on that kind of, uh, what do you, I don't know what you call it, really, the... Um, the, uh, crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the benefit of that is that everybody gets to benefit. Friend sourcing. Yeah. So, look, it's great. And um, a lot of people contribute to this show. We want to give a shout-out to Matt Graham, who does the editing for the show. Um, and obviously, uh, John Montgomery's done a huge amount of work with the site itself in, in running uh, the stuff, my, my business partner. So thanks to all those guys, and thanks to it you guys. It may not for seem that this is edited, but that's the sign of a good editor. <laughs> See, did you know that edit then? No. <laughs> And, and uh, we want to thank you so much for listening because uh, we've been quite humbled by how much this show has grown in the last year. So thanks so much. Um, if you, you want to catch Jason, he's on the Twitters at... Uh, Twitter.com slash Wingrove or Vimeo.com slash Wingrove or JasonWingrove.com. But more importantly, 
Jason actually has a red center Twitter feed. That I he's do. Yes, start it's always been liking. there, but it's been a bit dormant, and I'm but, starting to. Uh, but it's uh, now no longer it. being dormant. Twitter.com/slash/redcenter uh, spent spelt the usual way. Yes, so uh, that's R E D C E N T R E, and um, we, look, we really uh, do genuinely uh, enjoy doing the show, of course. But you know, it makes it all so much better when we hear from people. And so, so thank you. I'm obviously over thank at you. FX Guide or at slash uh, Twitter at slash Mike Seymour. And uh, until next time, um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us red at fxguide.com. Copyright 2010, FX Guide, LLC.